Let's stand in honor of God's word. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start in chapter 5, verse 11, because chapter 6 is actually a continuance of, um, of that last portion of chapter 5. So I'm going to start there, and then we'll go through chapter 6. Chapter 5, verse 11 says, There is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. And here we enter chapter 6. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature and our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name saying, I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently and he received what God had promised. Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls and leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would help me speak with clarity. God, that you would help your people understand your word better today. God, that you would clarify um, mysteries and confusion to them. Um, about what this chapter may be saying. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to every heart individually in this place. God, give them what they came needing this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. 
Now, it seems that there's about three, I would say three, if I were to section them off, I'd say three major ideas or topics within this chapter. And the first is being the topic of spiritual growth. Now, that was touched on last week, but let me kind of, um, let me kind of segue into chapter six by retouching on that, if I may. Um, the author here, which is unknown, um, it used to be thought of as Paul, but now they're not so sure. Um, there is a couple, uh, there's a couple guesses as to who it could be, but really it is unknown. But whoever it is, they're strongly encouraging the audience here to spiritually grow up, and he likens their maturity level to a baby who still needs milk. I would not want to be compared to that example. I don't know about you. Um, and so I think we can figure out how not to get there um, by digging a little deeper into this portion of scripture. So I want to go ahead and um, dig a bit into these verses. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. Um, and whatever translation you have, feel free to read it along. I'm going to actually read this this time out of the NASB translation. Verse 13 specifically says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Now I need you to catch this. The, that word accustomed there in the classical Greek, according to Help's word studies, okay, refers to lacking adequate skill or knowledge, hence failing due to lack of familiarity or practice. There is a lack of familiar, familiarity or practice. In other words, the spiritual infants out there that are being called out in this portion of this chapter, they lack familiarity and they are not practicing God's word in their life. Okay, let's get that clear. They are not practicing God's word in their life, and, that is what, and that's what's led to their infancy. Now look at this. Jump over with me to chapter 6, verse 1. And again, I'll reread this out of the NASB. Verse 1 says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now the author is saying, I want you guys to press on to maturity. Let's leave the foundational things. That should be second nature by now. Let's press on to maturity. And so how exactly do you do that? How exactly are they going to press on? Well, the root of the word used for press on literally means to bear or wear as a habit, implying repetition or continuation. And maybe the light bulb is starting to go on by now. The difference maker between those who are infants in Christ and those who are maturing in Christ is the priority of God's word in their life. Is the practice of God's word in their life, is the repetition and the continuation of God's word in their life. This is so important. Feelings aside, you know, because I, I, at times, at times, I know people don't feel like reading the Bible, but maybe we need to shift our mindset and we need to realize that we can't live without getting in the Bible. We can't do it. We can't do it or else we'll be foundational Christians at best. We need to dig into God's word. We need to make it a priority and we need to make it a lifestyle. We need to be practicing what it says. So let's not allow ourselves to become those immature Christians that are being spoken of here. Let's make the word of God habitual in our life. Maturity is built, spiritual growth is built, and if you do not exercise repetition with God's word, we will become Christians 
that are not maturing, that are failing to mature in Christ, that are not growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't treat the Bible as a, as a first aid kit, just running to it when we're cut, when we're bleeding, when we're hurting, when we're going through a tough time. You need to treat it as your lifeline because in the good and in the bad, we need God's word. Amen? Amen. Press on to maturity. The second topic in Hebrews 6 speaks of people falling away uh, from Christ. And I just want to reread those verses. 4 through 6 says, For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven, and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. Strong stuff being spoken of here. And this inevitably brings up a very contested topic, um, I believe, amongst believers, and that is the uh, once saved, always saved uh, debate and whether or not that is the case. So the question concerning this passage, um, because I believe it's a question that no doubt arises when you read this, is can salvation be lost? So can salvation be lost? I don't believe that it can necessarily be just completely just lost, but I do believe you can reject it. And I'm going to show you this and back this up with scripture, but let's first establish that in this passage that it's Christians being spoken of here, because we have to understand that. Let's first establish that. There's two schools of thought as to who the people being spoken of here would be, and that would, one, be unbelievers who knew of God but never fully stepped in and then chose to reject, or Christians who had a walking relationship with our Heavenly Father and chose to reject him then. But because of relational language used in the verses, I believe it's completely speaking about Christians. I just want to use an example. When it states in verse 4, shared in the Holy Spirit. In another translation, it says partakers of the Holy Spirit. The word partakers there is used to define believers actively sharing in Christ's life. Literally radical transformation. Walking with God. That does not sound like an unbeliever to me. That sounds like a Christian who has a living relationship with our Heavenly Father. Another example, even to cement this, if that's not enough, when it states in verse 6, um, in one translation, it says it this way. I'll just read it. And then have fallen away. And then have fallen away. The word fallen away describes someone who has fallen away after being very close. All right. So these are not distant people. These are not people that just know of God from a distance. These are people spoken of here that had a relationship with God and chose to walk away, rejecting Everything that they knew, they had come to know the goodness of God in its fullest capacity. They were probably used by God, and they chose to reject that, okay? Based on this, I believe it's clearly possible to reject salvation. Otherwise, we wouldn't be walking this Christian walk with fear and trembling like Paul speaks in, in Philippians chapter 2. But in the same breath, and here's the good news, let me say it this way. God is always in the business of restoration, He's always in the business of redemption, and he's always in the business of bringing people back to his heart. And let me just back that up with a scripture in Romans, and we'll cement that. So if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 11, verses 19 through 23.
chapter 11, 19 through 23, says, While you may say those branches were broken off to make room for me, yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Just talking about a, a, a healthy fear of God here. Goes on in 22 to say, notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe toward those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in this kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. Here's the good part. And if, if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the tree. God is all about restoration. I love how that's the vision of this church as well. He's all about restoration. He's all about the prodigal sons returning home. Okay, he is all about people coming back to his heart. Amen? Amen. And the last topic and probably my favorite of this chapter um, is, a strong, uh, is a strong urgency to hope. Strong urgency to hope. Now the definition for hope here is um, an expectation of something certain. Okay, it's, it's, it's sure, it's solid. It's speaking of, of entrusting your hope into something just rock solid. It's certain. It doesn't waver, it's certain. And so we must realize that we use hope, you know, in our everyday language in a different way than what the Bible is implying here. Biblical hope differs from worldly hope. I hope I get this. You know, I, I, I hope this happens. Um, I hope you get well. I hope you get better. It's wishful thinking the way we use it on earth in a worldly way. It's wishful thinking. Biblical hope is certain. It's expectant of something certain. Expectant of something sure. It's much more confident. There is much more confidence with the biblical hope. And another thing, hoping in God never disappoints. It doesn't disappoint. Maybe, maybe you'd be honest and say that you, you've, your hopes have been broken, you know, disappointed before doesn't feel too good. But here's the thing. Godly hope does not lead to disappointment. You can be confident in the hope that you have in God. No matter who is broken, you know, um, the, no matter how your hopes have been broken in the past, um, no matter, you know, how many people have broken their word, you know, you can confidently hope in God and the things and the promises of our Father. It doesn't God, godly hope doesn't disappoint because it's aimed at God himself, his promises, and his will, which are rock solid and will not let us down. Just like a few verses ago, God can't lie. God is not a liar. Let me just say, God, God doesn't know how to, you know, lies don't live in him. He is truth. He's complete truth. Come to the realization that God doesn't lie. Take it seriously when you read the word and when God states things, because those are sure, those are certain, God means it, and he's not lying, and he's not going to go back on his word. It is sure, and it's solid. And maybe you'd um, be honest in here and say that you have either broken a promise, or you've been on the receiving end of a broken promise. All right? The word promise in our culture has lost its weight. Um, because we throw it around so flippantly 
and it, 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 it's almost like it doesn't mean as much anymore. But regardless of whether we have devalued promises, God will not, and he never will. The promises of God are sure. We have to realize that. It's not the same as how we throw around promise in our culture. God's promises are much more concrete, and that is something we can hope in. And just begin reading the Bible if you don't know what to hope in. The Bible is packed with the addition, you know, with, with, the, um, with the obvious of having a hope in eternal life with our Father as believers. There are so many things to hope for. There are so many promises to hope in daily, every day. There are promises you can wake up to every single day in the Word of God. There's so much to hope for and to hold on to and hope. Look at verses 11 through 12. It says, as the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be, whoops, I am in the wrong portion. Give me a second. That is not the right chapter. Here we go. 11 through 12 says, our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Let me just say, if, if we do not come to realization of the hope in God, like they're being urged to do here, if we do not come to realize the hope that we actually have in our Heavenly Father, we are going to become unmotivated. Unmotivated. In fact, Another translation uses the word sluggish. They say, so that you will not become motivated, we hope that you come to realization of the hope that you actually have. We can forget the hope that we have. We can fail to remind ourselves of how much hope we actually have in God. And when that happens, it actually tells us that we can become sluggish. And the word actually means someone who's lazy and unmotivated and lagging behind. Hope is a motivator. Hope is a motivator. Hope drives you. Okay, it's when we lose hope that we lose passion, that we lose motivation. And God supplies that in infinite amounts when we entrust our hope into him. His supply will not run out. Why would we be motivated to live a life dedicated to God when we haven't figured out how to hope in the things of God? I mean, why would we? Why would we? There is so much to hope for. We have to come to realization to it. And you have every reason to be hopeful. It gives us purpose. It gives us motivation. And it drives us as we walk this walk out. Amen? Now look, look at verses 17 through 20 with me. says, God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. And this is the best part of this portion. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain and to God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there 
for us. Hope is described here as an anchor for our souls that leads us through the curtain into the inner sanctuary. Now, anchors having a few purposes, but they, they have a main one, and that is to keep the ship still and sturdy when storms hit, and that's also going to keep the ship from hitting something and sinking as the storm is raging and in that process. It's supposed to keep a ship still. It also, it's, it also depicts hope this way. It says it leads us through the curtain into the inner sanctuary. Now, this is speaking in Old Testament language. It's referring to the Holy of Holies, um, which was the place where God's presence resided in the temple in the Old Testament. So the people that are being written to, they obviously have knowledge of the Old Testament, and that's probably why it's being used here. They know what it means. And if you put that together, our hope is anchored where God is. Our hope is anchored where God is. It's anchored in the eternal. All right, our hope lies in the eternal, not the temporal, not the worldly. Our hope is to lie in the eternal. It will keep us secure even in the tough times. I just think that those few verses are a beautiful description of what it means to have hope in God. I just absolutely love how that depicts it. It's powerful. And what makes this passage even more powerful is that Hebrews is believed to have been written before 70 AD. It was written to a people who were under persecution because of their Christian faith. Now, we know that Nero's reign in Rome lasted from 54 to 68 AD, and Nero heavily persecuted Christians. In fact, it's believed he was the one that started the fire of Rome. Not only did he start it, not only was he lunatic, you know, enough, he blamed it on the Christians because the Christians were an easy blame shift. They, a lot of rumors had already rose up about them that obviously weren't true, but they were already hated, they were already despised, and to further that, Nero blames the destruction of Rome on the Christians. And so if people weren't out to get him now, or if they weren't out to get him before, they are now. And Nero despised the Christians along with everybody else. He was so twisted that at his parties, he would burn Christians alive to illuminate his garden. To illuminate his garden. He would burn them alive to illuminate his garden when he had parties. Now, knowing that, I know I'm taking a few liberties by saying this, but it's very possible that the audience being written to here was under Roman persecution. And it's very possible it happened within the time frame of Nero's reign, okay? If that's true, Christians at the point that this was being written were being killed left and right. They're being killed left and right, and yet the author pens the verses, therefore, therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge have great confidence as we hold to the hope set before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary, communicating that godly hope lies anchored much more deeply and securely than any hope of this world could offer. It lies somewhere unaffected by turmoil in the world. It lies somewhere unaffected by decay. It lies somewhere unaffected by destruction. It lies anchored 
in God himself. It's protected in God's presence. Nobody can take your hope from you. We may fail to realize it, but nobody can take that hope from you. And the first century Christians here, persecuted, being urged to hold on to hope, what they did is, as you may know already, they began to have to meet um, in secret. And the common place was the catacombs uh, in Rome. And they adapted a symbol that not only was found in the catacombs where they met, but it was found also on the tombs of passed away Christians. And that symbol that they chose, they could have picked anything. They could have picked the cross. Probably wasn't the best idea because it would have probably given it away right away. Could have been anything. But they chose an anchor. It served as a constant reminder of where their hope was in times of chaos. They were literally marked by hope. They were marked by hope when everything was going wrong around them, when people, friends, family, who knows, was being killed all around them, they were marked by hope. If they needed to be reminded of anything, they needed to be reminded of where their hope was and how secure it was in their Heavenly Father. When the heat gets turned up, when things start hitting our life, when we need a hope that is anchored deep. We need a hope that's anchored deep. When things start happening in our lives that we didn't expect, when we start experiencing hardship, I need a hope that goes through the curtain into God's very presence that's unaffected by what I'm dealing with here, but surpasses all of it and is protected by my Heavenly Father. I need a hope that goes deeper. I need a hope that is more secure than possessions, than money, than relationships, in my appearance, in my affirmation from my friends, from my family. I need a hope that goes so much deeper than that because that is going to give way when things get tough in my life. I need a hope that goes deeper. I need a hope that is anchored in the concrete presence of God and the promises of God and the will for God and what he has for me in my life because my Bible says he has good thoughts towards me Thoughts to prosper me, prosper me, not to harm me, to give me a future, and to give me a hope. We can be anchored in that, and we can be sure and confident in the hope that we have in our Heavenly Father. The first century Christians could have lost close, close people in their lives during Nero's reign. Who knows? I know it was a lot. Nero hated him. But even in the face of death, they knew at the very least, and it wasn't anything small, but at the very least, they had the hope of eternal life unto their dying breath. There's always hope in God. There is always a hope that we can take in God. And it's for that reason, guys, that we have every reason to hold on to hope. No matter what's happening, we always have a hope anchored in our Heavenly Father. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for being our sure and certain hope. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that you have a will for everybody in this life. We thank you that they're not here by accident. But God, you have plenty of things for them to hope for. 
and maybe you're in here and you'd be honest that you have lost hope lately. And if you would say that, I want to encourage you, regardless of where you've been putting your hope in, if you put it in God, and if you anchor it in God's promises and nothing else, nothing will be able to disappoint you. Nothing can devastate you because you are investing your entire being and you are being driven by God's will, by his promises, because of who he is. You can have confidence in that. Life is so good when we hope in God. When we, when we put our hope in the right place, it doesn't have to be disappointing. God has a future and a hope for every person. In fact, if you're in here and you don't even know where to begin, you've never asked Jesus into your heart. You don't even know what it means to have a relationship with God. Maybe this didn't even make much sense to you because you have never known God personally. The good news is God wants a relationship with you today. And he came and died for you, not only to pay for all the mistakes that you can make, but he also paved the way for relationship, tearing down boundaries. He now wants a personal relationship with you. Just like you would have with a friend, he wants to be that close with you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to guide you through life. He wants to use you for his glory. He has a plan and he wants to know you. If that is you and you've never made that decision, you've never made that commitment in your life, on the count of three, I just want you to raise your hand so I know people want to pray and make that decision. One, two, three. anybody never made that decision before want to do it today there's no better day than now there's no better time today is your day last call anybody want to make that decision okay I'm going to believe we're all believers here let me just pray over you God I pray for a refreshing of hope I pray for a, real, for a realization of hope. God, fill them up with hope. Motivate them by your promises. Motivate them by your will, Heavenly Father. Let them know again that you have a plan for them, that you haven't forgotten them. God, that you're there with them and that you anchor our very being. God, that we can hold to what your word says and the toughest times in our life, God, we are reminded of that and we hold on to your hope. We hold on. God, we love you. We love you, Jesus. Fill us with hope, Lord, so we can show people hope, so that we can reflect hope to the world, that we wouldn't be hopeless, but full of it. We'd be full of hope, Jesus, as we walk, go through our daily lives, through the stores, 
on the streets, Heavenly Father. Pray that we would be images of hope. God, and you would get the glory.